Hey friends, you know what I don't miss at all? That vicious week before the period. Feeling like I'm ready to crawl out of my skin, irritated by everything and everyone around me. Bouncing between cravings for salty foods and sweets and back again. Now it's easier to manage PMS with Estro Control from Happy Mammoth. Estro Control contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like the chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a menstruating person's life. And the biggest benefit? Feeling like myself again. That's what people mention over and over in their reviews. And there are over 17,000 reviews for Happy Mammoth products, including Estro Control. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code CORP, C-O-R-P, at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code C-O-R-P for 15% off today. This is Including You, the new series from Lead at Any Level. Including You features stories from chief diversity officers and other executives who are creating inclusive cultures in their organizations. Our goal is to show what's working in companies just like yours, to give you the tools you need to keep pushing for progress in your own workplace. We want to create belonging and opportunity for everyone, including you. And now here's your host, Amy C. Wanninger. Welcome back to Including You. I'm Amy C. Wanninger, your host. My guest today is Christopher Bylone Van Sandwijk. Christopher has been named a top 15 champion of diversity by Diversity Global Magazine. He served in the role of chief diversity officer at multiple companies, and he's currently transitioning into a new role to be announced soon. We have an exciting conversation today that is going to talk about all the things that chief diversity officers can't talk about when they're actually working for a company. So I'm really excited to talk to him today. Welcome to the show, Christopher. Thank you, Amy, for having me. I hope I didn't set you up too much there, but no, not at all. The pressure's on. So let's go. <laughs> all right. Sounds great. So I want to just open by saying, first of all, thank you for being on the show. It's rare that I interview someone that's not in an active role at the time of the recording. And so we've decided that we're going to take full advantage of this moment in, in history, this moment in time. And <laughs> I want to start with just kind of asking about you know, why is this work important to you? Why do you keep going back to this? Because I know that there is so much stress and so much pressure, which we'll get to in a little bit. And it's often a thankless job to be in a chief diversity officer role. You never feel like you're doing enough. People will tell you you're pushing too hard. You're not pushing hard enough. You're always walking this tightrope. Why is this work so important to you that you keep going back to it? I think you will probably, it'll be an, a common answer for a lot of folks who are in this role. It's personal. Um, to me, this is not a job. It's a calling. There's seen that Venn diagram where it says, what are you good at? What does the world need? What do you enjoy? And what can you get paid for? And in the center, it says purpose. Um, and for me, this is my purpose. I've done other roles. I've done workforce planning. I've done HRIS. But for me, this was a coming home for me. So I started out actually doing social justice work in college. Um, and then after I graduated from college, I went into 
to higher education and worked with student leaders who were leading social justice organizations on a college campus. I joked and said I was breeding new activists, but what I was trying to help them do was to understand about how to create positive change on campus. How were they, because you could create change and it could be negative change. And so how are you making positive change? And then I wound myself up in the corporate world, just by happenstance of the way our careers are, everybody's path is a little different. Wound myself up in corporate America, working in HR, doing various different types of roles. And at the time I wasn't doing DEI. I was doing workforce planning. And then the opportunity to do DEI again presented itself. And I just said, it's the right time. I want to get back into it because it's really what I'm passionate about. And I knew I was missing something. And I said, if we're going to do DEI and you want me to lead it, I have a caveat. The only, I'm going to do this if we're willing to roll up our sleeves, get our hands dirty, and not just do the kumbaya facade stuff. Yes, we need to develop an ERG program and we need to celebrate International Women's Day and Pride and Black History Month and People with Disabilities Day. Yes, absolutely. But if we're not willing to change policy, if we're not willing to change the way we recruit and promote and retain um, and train employees about inclusion, one, I'm not your DEI guy, and two, I quit because this is not that's not the type of organization I want to be a part of. Luckily, they said yes. This is the type of DEI role that we want to have, and for me, it's about how do I impact the most people intentionally. Also, I hope one day we don't need chief diversity officer roles. It just needs to be so embedded in the business that I'm working myself out of a job. Now, thankfully, right now for my own family financial security, I have a lot, we have a long way to go before I work myself out of a job. I know I'm going to be financially secure for a very long time. And many of my peers will be as well, because we have a lot of work to do. So for me, it's just about how are we creating good? Lately, I've been saying to folks, been the eight old adage of a rising tide will rise all ships. And to me, I think that doesn't work anymore. The sea is really rough. We are in some really big storms and we have to tie our boats together so that we can weather this storm out. And so hopefully on the other side of the storm we are in and when the seas finally calm back, then we're all like, we're all safe. But until then, we got to join partners. Like th th this work can't be done alone. This podcast, Living Corporate, is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Whether you're just starting out or managing a growing brand, Squarespace makes it easy to create a beautiful website, engage with the audience, and sell anything from products to content to time, all in one place on your terms. Let me tell you something. Y'all might not know this, but Living Corporate, we started our whole journey on Squarespace. My website, ZacharyNunn.com, it's on Squarespace. I can't tell you how much I appreciate its fluid engine, the ability to create world-class templates and design. It's very intuitive, incredible. We have custom merch through our Squarespace. We have an incredible asset library, so I can always mix it up, switch and swap. It's super dope. And the fact that you can host all types of content, video, audio, all types of media, you can put all on your Squarespace. I can't recommend it enough.
If you want to learn more about Squarespace, check out squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com backslash corporate to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com backslash corporate to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Absolutely. It's, I'm fond of saying to audiences, to media interviews, to anyone that will listen, it is not always productive to look as an individual or as a group of people to look at the obstacles that we face individually or as a group. What we need to be doing is looking back and seeing who hasn't gotten this far and how can we clear the obstacles we didn't see so we can all move forward together. Because until we all move forward together, we're really missing an opportunity to learn, to grow, to push, to change in transformational ways. Yeah. And it's because, you know, I come to this space with a lot of privilege. I am male and I am white. I own that. However, I know it's my responsibility and I need to be held accountable to ensure that by doing this work, I am not just taking up my own space. What am I doing to make sure that the voices of the underrepresented groups are being heard? It's, you know, it's about making sure that the voices that need to be in the conversation are there. I may be able to open the door, right? But I better be pulling people in with me and then saying, okay, I'm, not just about giving up my seat at the table, but making sure that they are at the table and their voices are being included in the conversation, sometimes over my own voice, because they're the voice that needs to be heard. Now, I also say that with a caveat, because it should not be the responsibility of the oppressed or the disenfranchised about always educating the other parts of society about their oppressions and what is how they've been disenfranchised because we can't tokenize people. It's not just about taking the gay person or the disabled person or the person of color or the woman and saying, okay, tell me all about them. I do know what it's like being a gay person. And when you're the only gay person in the room and they say, Christopher, what does the LGBT community have to think? And I'm like, I'm Christopher. I only represent Christopher in this. Like I can only talk about my experience. One, when you start putting gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer questioning, I'm a gay man. I'm not a trans woman or a trans man. I can't tell you about those experiences. I can sympathize but I can't tell you about them firsthand. So making sure that when we're having the conversation, we're including trans voices, we're including people of color, we're including women in those conversations so that it's their lived experience that is shaping the strategy in which we're trying to achieve. It's so important. And I love that. I don't speak for all people from my particular group. They didn't give you the scrolls, right? When you came out, You weren't bequeathed with the LGBTQ position scrolls where you could just walk into the room and say, here's what we think. And with the gay agenda, (laughs) like what people say, oh, the gay agenda. And I would have been like, okay, the gay agenda is coffee, get the kids on the bus, lunch. Okay. Get the kid to football, get the kid to dance, make dinner, ask my husband how his day was. It's my agenda. My gay agenda is now catch Matto every Monday night. If I can stay awake late enough, that's my gay agenda. 
but no, but I think this is so important because we tend to see others. We tend to see monolithic others and we tend to see individualization in our own experience. And that tends to be true across the board. I know within the LGBT community, I've had these conversations where people say, why, why can't other people see the nuance in our, in our experience? Why can't, why can't they see that a black trans woman does not have the same needs as a queer Hispanic male or a, a bisexual white woman or a gay white man? Why is that so hard to understand? And, and my response to that is, well, how good are we as the LGBTQ community writ large at understanding that not all people of color have the same experience or perspective? Not all black people have the same lived experience or perspective. Not all Black people in Mississippi who are descendants of slaves have the same, or descendants of enslaved people have the same lived experience or perspective. So there's a lot of nuance in everyone's experiences, depending on where we grew up and how we or were even raised. Just white straight men have the same experience. So how are we making sure that we're being cognizant of their lived experience? Because we haven't touched on socioeconomic status. Religion. You know, so religion, just there's so many aspects to what makes somebody whole. Mm -hmm. And yes, right now, rightfully, we're talking about gender, race, ethnicity, disability, LGBTQ. Sometimes we're talking about veteran status if we're organizations based in the United States. And a lot of times we're having the conversation from a U.S. lens. Having served in global roles has really opened my eyes up to understanding how these conversations happen differently outside of the U.S. And to me, that's so important that we don't, that we, I don't want to say don't because then I'll make a double negative, but we need to be having conversations about what does diversity, equity, and inclusion look like in other countries and not putting a U.S. lens on it. And sometimes learning, us in the U.S., we need to learn what our colleagues are doing around the world because sometimes they're actually doing it better than how we do it here. America isn't always the best (laughs) at doing something. And so we need to take the examples of what other people are doing and best practice share from wherever those best practices are coming from. Living Corporate is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program It's incredible. Okay, so first off, you didn't know, Rosetta Stone is a trusted expert for over 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. They have fast language acquisition, meaning you're actually going to pick up the language because it's gonna provide an immersive experience for you through their program. Speech recognition gives you a trainer for your accent. Convenient, right? You can use it on your computer, you can use it on your phone. Incredible value. Lifetime membership has all languages for any and all trips or language needs in life. That's lifetime access to 25 language courses Rosetta Stones offers for 50% off. That's a steal, y'all. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, living corporate listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com backslash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosannastone.com backslash today, today. Absolutely. And that brings me to my next question, because I want to talk to you a little bit about what's worked in your experience. But I also want to talk about this because the chief diversity officer role typically sees about a two-year tenure before a person leaves a role, either because there's some organizational change that precipitates the change in the position, or the person decides that 
it's time to go for a variety of reasons. And I wanted to ask you, since you're in this transitory space in, in time, what is it about this role that you see as being particularly difficult to build sort of a legacy presence in this mm. space in a particular company? What is it about this role that is so challenging to keep filled, to keep, to maintain continuity? So I think it goes back to, so there's a plethora of reasons. So off the top of my head quickly, something I said the earlier, earlier in this conversation, it's personal, right? This work is draining. This is, you're not making a widget. You're just mentally at the end of the day, exhausted because you are dealing every day, dealing with 10 different types of topics. You're going from one conversation where you're talking about gender. And then the next time you're talking about helping a trans person come out at work. And then you're talking about somebody who has a disability, who the building that they're in isn't accessible to them. And then you're talking to the black colleague who was my manager is discriminating against me. And then like, you're just, you're constantly going, you're a ping pong ball, right? In, in this world. And at the end of the day, you're just like, oh my God, can I just catch a break for a second? And however, there's a systemic problem. Budgets, DEI budgets are not sustainable. I was in a conversation the other day and somebody made a really great analogy about if a mark, if a marketing plan goes awry, you don't eliminate the marketing budget. You probably double down on the marketing budget. So when DE&I programs don't necessarily work the way folks want them to initially. Don't cut it. Invest more. I also think that the reason why, and so again, this is the world according to Christopher Bylone. So we are in a period now where organizations two years ago, roughly, had an awakening and not one that they welcomed initially. What was happening during the summer of 2020? DEI we budgets and learning and development budgets were getting cut because of the pandemic. But then what also happened? George Floyd was George murdered. George Floyd was murdered on camera for the whole world to see. World to see. So companies then had to reckon themselves with the fact that not just in the United States, but around the world, specifically Black colleagues were not treated well. You even saw Asian colleagues during the pandemic, specifically in the United States, being harassed. You were seeing our Hispanic brown colleagues being harassed and being told to go back to their own country. And that's been happening for years. That wasn't because of the pandemic. But it came to a point where companies could not ignore it. And so they said, okay, let's hire a head of DE&I. However, they gave them no budget. They gave them no real authority to actually make change. And honestly, people going into this work went in it with, okay, no, I don't have a budget. I don't right now have real authority, but I'll change that. I'll convince them that I need a budget and I'll convince them that you need to give me the authority to make changes, et cetera. A lot of organizations didn't. I was lucky that I had, a, I had an okay budget. I had decent authority to make changes. I knew where I had, where my authority ended. So I could, okay, is this a change that Christopher can make by himself? 
or is this one that I need to go up higher in the organization? So I had a clear level of understanding what I was responsible for and had the authority to do. However, most organizations aren't giving their heads of DE&I that ability. And so you can last two to three years in that type of a role, pounding your head up against the wall, feeling frustrated, and then it's gonna wear on you after a while. And so then you say, okay, why am I still doing this? I'm not making the impact that I wanna make. And for those of us who this is our career, it's not about, oh, you were the, you were a really good head of marketing. Oh, and you happen to be of a marginalized group. So now we're gonna make you the chief diversity officer. Because we're also organizations, we're not giving those practitioners or who were told they need to be practitioners, the training they needed to actually do this work, right? I felt I have been trained to do this work. This isn't just something that got put upon me. This is who I am as a professional. And so we need to do a better job to equip the people who are responsible for DE&I to actually do DE&I work, not just because, oh, they're a great head of this part of the organization. And so now we're going to slap the DE&I title on them and we expect that they're going to make real change. And oh, by the way, don't give somebody two jobs. Don't be the chief marketing officer and, oh, now you're the chief DE&I officer. Because now you're asking them to do two jobs. This is a job in and of itself. If the organization is not willing to have somebody in this role and this is their full FTE responsibility, they really committed. Yeah. Whenever somebody tells me they have two jobs, I'm always like, so they pay you two salaries. No. No, they never do. <laughs> They never do. Okay. So given all of that and the, and I think you started out with when you took lead DEI role, you said, I want to make sure that we're doing real work. I want to make sure that I'm going to have the budget and the resources. And you kind of negotiated all of that up front. And I think a lot of companies do that. Their intentions are good. And then they find out how hard the work is going to be. They don't have a clear business case. It's not integrated into the strategy of the sustainability of the company or they don't have buy-in from people high enough up, or there's there are some obstacles that happen along the way. And like the best of intentions are to go by the wayside. And I don't want to say it's an intentional bait and switch, but a lot of times these promises fall apart. And I also think, correct me if I'm wrong, that in a role like that, where you're dealing with executives every day who are focused on things like financials and marketing and sales and cost control and all of the other things, operational efficiency, all of the things that the other executives on the team are consumed with, there's this balancing act of always worried that my next fight will be my last fight, that the next stand that I take will be the last stand that I take. I hear that from a lot of diversity officers behind the scenes. I would love to push for that, but I'm afraid of crossing a line I can't come back from. And then the, none of the work will get done. I'd rather get this percentage of the work done than none of it. And I'm wondering how much of that you've seen in your experience or with your colleagues. I would agree with when I think that it's a choice. I think this is the this goes back to the time when I was a college student leader and I was advocating for real change. And I used to be the person that would just be on the picket line, rebel rousing, being a thorn in the side of the administration. But then I quickly learned that we weren't actually making any progress. And so I said, okay, then how are we going to make progress? And I said, okay, well, we're actually going to have to talk 
just screaming at each other across the street isn't actually going to make any change. So I said to myself, okay, I'm willing to go into the quote unquote lion's den. And so I started to be somebody who I would go meet with the administration and I would be in the room saying, okay, let's find a path forward. We know that I know that I'm not going to meet, be able to get you to meet all of our demands, but I'm going to need you to meet some of them. So how can we negotiate here? And when those negotiate, sometimes they were like, great, wonderful. Let's talk. Let's meet in the middle. Let's figure out. And then we're like, okay, we got X. Now let's live to fight another day. Right? Christopher, I know you're going to be back here in about three weeks from now asking for more, but at least now we were. However, sometimes those talks stalled. And so what I said to the leaders is saying, look, you have two options here. One, I can go outside and tell the folks, listen, we didn't get everything we wanted, but we got a good amount. Let's go home. Let's regroup and figure out our strategy going forward. Or I walk out and say, we got nothing. Stay picketing. We'll try again tomorrow. What do you want to do? Do you want the picketers to leave and to stop drawing attention to this so that you could actually go and do other work? Or do you want them here? And the only thing that anybody is asking you about and the only thing that you can give your brain tower to is figuring out how you're going to make these protesters go away. So to me, I have come to this work saying, what can I negotiate for without compromising my morals and keeping moving the ball down the court? And so I know a former employer that I was at, we were rolling out global parental leave. We were launching 16 weeks of fully paid leave for both men and women for birth adoption surrogacy of a child. That was going to be revolutionary. However, at the same time, I was like, you know, I want to make sure that this policy that we're putting forward is going to be the best. If we're going to do this, let's do this. So I started talking about, okay, what about surrogacy policy? What are we giving to women who are actually being the surrogate? What happens with miscarriages? When somebody has a miscarriage, what are we doing for them? And initially everybody was a go. Then as people started talking, I was like, Christopher, we feel like this is going to be too much change at once. We're good with the 16 weeks because we know this is, but you're asking for extra. And I pushed, right, a little bit more. And what I, but then I really started understanding, it was like, oh my God, if I keep pushing this surrogacy thing and this miscarriage part of the policy, I might actually doom the whole thing. And so I said, you know what? Understand this is a bridge too far right now. Let's take it out. I just want people to know that we're going to revisit this in the future, but let's get this great policy that is going to impact so many people. Let's get it there. And so for me, I wasn't compromising my morals. I was moving the ball significantly down the court, but also made the organization understand that this was the first of many actions we were going to take to be able to be a family-friendly organization. And so it's a balancing act. You're not going to get 100% of what you're asking for all the time. So you need to ask yourself, what's success? To me, watching a global parental leave policy, that's huge. Like people ask me, like, you know, what are some of your successes that you've had in your career? 
and I say that one, and it's that's probably going to make it into my retirement speech. Right now, I know I'm not going to retire for 20 or 30 years, but when I talk back about my career, that's going to be one thing I talk about. Hopefully I get to do it again, but that's what I mean. It's about figuring out how you're going to advance the ball down the court without compromising your models and be honest with yourself about the change, the positive change you can make. Yeah. Doing, excuse me, doing the most good for the most people for the longest that you can. Yes. It's there's a lot of calculus that goes into that. There's a lot of double thinking, rethinking, self-censoring, really. And I don't want to say like politicking, but there is some politicking in it to build the right support, to build coalitions. And that's exhausting work. And then, but it's also the same thing. It's about knowing when to step aside because knowing when your time is done with that particular organization. You have made all the change you could possibly make. And you know what? It's time for somebody else to do the rest of the work. And you need to be honest about yourself. What does that look like upfront so that you're not making an emotional decision? Because a lot of times we do, we're getting fed up. We draw that line in the sand and we put on the armor and we're saying, don't make me cross it. Then somebody makes you cross it. And then you go, oh, I just crossed this line. Now, what do I do? And so now you have to make a decision. Do you compromise the line that you draw on or do you actually take action on it? And so we have to, and we can't, we get ourselves in this predicament all the time because it's, we're, it's personal to us. We just have to be mindful about the change we're making. Like you said, do as much good as you can for as many people as you can for as long as you can. And when you start to realize that is not happening anymore, it's time to move on and move on to your next opportunity and do it for more people. Yep. Carry a different ball down a different field. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. Christopher, I could literally talk to you all day about this. I think it is fascinating. It's work that I am passionate about. And I know you are as well. And I know that our listeners are too, or they wouldn't be listening to really advance inclusion in workplaces to make workplaces more equitable, more fair, more welcoming, more diverse and more sustainable, frankly, because there's just, there's so much change going on in the world. And the insides of our companies need to reflect that so that we can continue to serve broader, evolving, different client bases, customer segments, and different constituencies all over the world. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. I can't wait to hear what's next for you. I can't wait to see your update on LinkedIn. Hopefully by the time this airs, we'll all be in the know on what's next for you. And I would love to have you back to talk about what's working in your new role. Absolutely. Welcome to continue the conversation. This has been exciting. Aang, thank you so much. I was finally excited to be able to get to have this conversation with you and looking forward to many more conversations in the future because the work's not over and we need to continue to tie our boats together. DE&I should not be a competitive advantage. However, until then, it we will make it one, but I hope one day I don't, we don't need this role in organizations because it's just so embedded and having these conversations is going to advance that goal. So thank you for the work that you also do and appreciate you including so many voices in the conversation and getting that out there. So thank you so much and have a great rest of your day. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, follow Lead at any level on LinkedIn and YouTube. Then join us for Including You video simulcast every Thursday at noon Eastern. Including You can also be enjoyed each week as part of the Living Corporate audio podcast series. 
available on all major podcast platforms. Learn more at living-corporate.com. Including You is brought to you in part by Lead at Any Level, a boutique training and consulting firm improving employee engagement and retention for companies that promote from within. Lead at Any Level. Leaders can be anywhere and should be everywhere. Learn more at leadatanylevel.com. Lead at Any Level and its logo are registered trademarks of Lead at Any Level LLC. The views and opinions of guests on our show do not necessarily reflect the positions of Lead at Any Level, Living Corporate, or the sponsors of Including You. That's it for this week's episode of Including You. Join me next week when my guest will be Noah France from Avantor.